This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClendon. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. Now, Sarah, I don't want to alarm you, but please close and lock the doors and have a seat because somebody in this room is a murderer. I think that's going to be a problem, Kevin, because there are only two of us in here. I beg your pardon? What are you implying? It could be anyone. It could be anyone, but it sounds like you might have something to confess. Well, we'll have to get to the bottom of this with some very involved deduction. But first, before we jump into the big questions, we're going to talk about a couple of movies first to set you at your ease, maybe get you off your guard. (laughs) First up, we're going to be talking about Kenneth Branagh's third outing with the great detective Hercule Poirot. A Haunting in Venice. And then we're going to be following that up with a party over a weekend at Gosford Park. That's Robert Altman's 2001 whodunit movie of manners. Now, Sarah, don't think that I haven't noticed you edging closer to that candlestick on the mantelpiece. Back away. Back away from the candlestick. You mean this candlestick or maybe this silver knife? Oh, no, we're not going to get any farther down that road. Listeners, stay tuned for episode 399 of seeing and believing. Hercule Poirot, I've found something. I've looked at it from every which way. I am the smartest person I ever met and I can't figure it out, so I came to the second. You are up to something, my friend. I've seen a million of these so-called psychics, each one a fake. I do not believe in psychics. Come with me to a seance. Spot the con I can't. Detective. You are here to discredit me, but I can talk to the dead. I'd give all I have to hear my daughter's voice. If someone wants to be heard, we are here. Listening. Yes, listeners, we're here on episode 399 of Seeing and Believing, and kind of a a bittersweet episode in a lot of ways, Sarah. This is going to be the last episode of the show where we do our traditional two movie reviews structure. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's a it's an end of an it's era. It's an end of an era. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It it feels I have mixed feelings about it, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk about these two movies with you. I am kind of bummed that this is going to be the last one, at least for the foreseeable future. But you know, yeah, all good things, I think. Yeah, and we do have a pretty great episode lined up for you. I'm looking forward a lot to talking about Gosford Park with you, Sarah. This is uh, contra to usual watch list practice. This is a watch list pick that neither of us have seen, so it's new to both of us. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to digging into that one. Also looking forward to talking about A Haunting in Venice. So this is the third outing with Kenneth Branagh and Hercule Poirot. It's also kind of a fitting bookend in a way to the Sarah era of the show, where Mm -hmm. way back in February 2022, not very long after you joined the show as a full-time host, we talked about Death on the Nile for that episode. And uh, way back in episode 131, of course, was when Wade and I discussed Murder on the Orient Express. So we've gotten all three Branagh Poirots in and looking forward to talking about Haunting in Venice this week. Mm -hmm. So uh, like I said, this is his third outing with Agatha Christie's generously mustachioed detective, Hercule Poirot. And it opens with Poirot in retirement in Venice. He's not doing any more cases. He's living a quiet, if not solitary life, when he's tracked down by his friend, a writer played by Tina Fey, who tries to get him back into sleuthing by bringing him along to a seance in the hopes that he will reveal the medium as a fraud. What actually gets revealed during the seance is that somebody was murdered and that one of the other attendees is a murderer. Oh, and also it's a dark and stormy night and the whole group of people are trapped together in the palazzo, a building that some say is haunted. 
So quite a setup there. This is a whodunit, Sarah, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the mechanics of the mystery, of the haunting, and of Branagh's filmmaking. But to kick us off, I wanted to dig into this film's spirituality. So with the inciting incident being a seance to contact a deceased child and all the questions that raises about Poirot's skepticism, questions about life after death, and what faith and belief require of us, I'm curious what you thought about Branagh's approach to these questions. Yeah, I was intrigued when the threads first surfaced within the movie. And as the film went along, I kept hoping for a little bit more. And ultimately, I think I was a little bit disappointed because I felt as though A Haunting in Venice could have dug a little bit more into those questions of the supernatural. For the first part, I didn't feel particularly haunted or unsettled by any of these questions. It just seemed as though Poirot's specific crisis of faith or lack of faith is something that is just sort of nodded to as an obstacle to be overcome, but not particularly anything that he's wrestling with in a way that I would have liked to see the movie dig into a little bit more. I think that's kind of a symptom of all of the Poirot movies, at least the ones directed by Kenneth Branagh, where there is some form of head nods towards something bigger or grander or more enduring than the mystery that's at hand. And I don't know that Branagh is able to pull off weaving together all of those threads and a mystery all at the same time, um, which I found frankly kind of disappointing because the idea of Poirot as someone who had been a person of faith, who's lost his faith because he's seen everything, and then is drawn into a mystery that is also an invitation for him to find additional faith, is something that I find very intriguing. I like that concept. I just don't think that the movie manages to pull it quite off. So I'm curious to know what you think about that too. Yeah, so I agree with you that it's a very intriguing setup and one that is kind of gratifying to at least see the film be interested in. That is Poirot being the supreme you know, man of reason, the guy who talks about his little gray cells, the, um, the one who is always interested in finding the logical explanation for everything and exploring what happens when that perspective butts up against things that don't necessarily seem to have a rational explanation and how does a man like that orient himself within that kind of a a conflict within that kind of a world um i'm with you though that it it feels like the the film is not either is not equipped to really dig into that question because it's got so much on its plate just with the mechanics of the mystery Mm. Or whether it is not willing to actually uh, come down on a side, so to speak. And by, by that, I don't mean that I wanted, wanted a definitive resolution to the question, but it kind of does feel as if those references to belief and faith that pop up throughout the movie are kind of in the same vein as you know, a superhero movie talking about how we need to have faith in things, mm-hmm. which is to say that it's feels a little bit like window dressing at the end, partly because there's so much else going on in the movie that one of those things have, has to give. Uh, so yeah, not, not entirely successful for me either. Yeah. I think Branagh's Poirot movies, and maybe I'll extend this to some of his later work period. Um, a lot of Branagh's work feels inoffensive and by that, I mean, it feels as though it's geared to have some sort of a, a slightly broader appeal and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I think if you're dealing with questions of spirituality, like the ones that this movie raises, I think that stories like that are aided by being willing to come down on a side, or at least to branch out and try to push some sort of a boundary. And this is a movie that is about a seance, about child murder, about a party of people who are all very much broken and trying to find their way in a world that is beginning to modernize after World War II. And none of them really knows where they're going. And yet I don't feel as though I felt 
any sort of tension or feeling as though I was kind of hanging off a cliff, like I might if I were the one wrestling with some of these questions. It feels very safe. And I don't think stories about hauntings should necessarily feel safe. And I don't think stories about people who are locked up in a room with a potential murderer should also feel particularly safe. But there wasn't really all that much tension here. And I think some of that possibly has to do with the script, possibly also just has to do with the filmmaking and the craft. There are a lot of very, um, at least at least in the beginning, the movie starts off with a lot of interesting angles, Dutch angles, but all of it feels as though it's been framed as, I don't know, an advertisement for tourism for the city of Venice. And something like that, I think, is aimed to frame Venice with its best angles in mind and not really draw any of the darker parts of the city out. And I don't think Branagh is, is able to do that with the guts of this story necessarily either. There are a lot of places that he could go. There are a lot of allusions to darker things. And I don't think that the movie needs to go too, too dark. But at the very least, I feel like it needs to say something. And here, it almost feels like it's an advertisement for Agatha Christie stories as opposed to an actual Agatha Christie mystery, at least in my mind. I mean, which is fitting because the story that this movie is purportedly based on is, let's just say that the adaptation is very loose <laughs> of the book. There's uh, not a whole lot of resemblance between what goes on in this film and what goes on in the Agatha Christie story. It kind of feels like it's it's going to do its own thing. And I don't know, I it, the weird thing is, it it I don't know that it feels entirely safe from a visual standpoint. Hmm. Branagh is doing a lot of, he's doing a lot, I guess, yeah. visually. There's, you know, there's a lot of very jarring editing. He has, you know, he, he chooses camera angles and camera placements that are designed to be very extreme and to call attention to themselves mm -hmm. um which is you know i do like seeing a blockbuster kind of strike out into those waters but i think the problem is it doesn't feel like despite all of the um bravado in that visual filmmaking it doesn't feel as if there's a whole lot of visual sense contained in it you know it, do mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like there's a very much um that actually sticks with you in terms of image making. Mm -hmm. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Guillermo del Toro's The Devil's Backbone. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that del Toro is great at is, number well, number one, he understands genre. He understands uh, why horror films, why ghost stories work, um, how they work. And he understands them so well that he can kind of... Uh, break them down to their elemental parts and then kind of build them up into something new um, and do something interesting with some well-worn genre tropes, but find fresh things that you've never seen before mm -hmm. out of the genre. Like that unexploded bomb in the courtyard of an orphanage is such a potent image mm -hmm. and can say so much. There, there's a lot that you can, a lot of symbolic meaning you can attach to that image. Mm -hmm. In A Haunting in Venice, there are a lot of uh, shots of, you know, weeping statues, of canals that are filled with churning water, of shadows and crows, and all sorts of things that Branagh clearly wants to use <laughs> to create atmosphere. But I think it's kind of, to, you know, Branna as a Shakespeare would appreciate this. It's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Mm -hmm. I don't find any of those images to actually say anything. They just sort of signify a generalized spookiness to them or ominousness. Mm. But there's nothing like that unexploded bomb in the courtyard that, that really just makes you stop in your tracks and think about it. It kind of feels like it's it's a lot of razzle-dazzle without anything underlying it. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's ominousness without a sense of unease. And I think it's the sense of unease that makes horror stories work particularly well. You mentioned the genre piece. Um, and I think we 
had talked at some point in the past about Kenneth Branagh and genre. I can't remember if we discussed it at all during our Death on the Nile review, but you did mention that Kenneth Branagh and genre are, are two things that don't necessarily always mix. And I think here he's trying to play not just with the whodunit genre, but also with the horror genre. And I think in splitting the difference, he kind of loses sight of both. I didn't really feel very much of a sense of mystery with this movie. And I wasn't actively trying to solve that mystery. It was something that I was content to just sit and let the movie wash me along until the murderer was finally revealed. Um, But I also didn't feel all that invested in figuring out who had done it either. And I think that that is something that is key to a good mystery. Likewise, when you're talking about horror, I don't necessarily need to feel afraid, but a sense of unease and a sense of disquiet with the world and the way that that movie presents the world, I think is key to a good horror movie. And I didn't really get any of that either. There were one or two pretty good show-offy shots that Branagh employs a little bit later in the film to communicate a little bit of something about Poirot's mental state. But all of the other showiness felt as though it was just servicing a signifier of you should feel a little bit uneasy right now. And I don't think any of it worked just because it felt so anonymous. I couldn't have placed any of it in, I don't know, a a very specific and lived in world. Um, I just felt kind of disappointed that I was being told to feel uneasy, but I never was given a good reason to feel uneasy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and I'm torn because, again, it is nice to see Branagh, like he's not directing on autopilot here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I'm hesitant to say that it's, you know, to to write off the movie completely. And I do think that there is some way in which the unease of these extreme camera angles and the the almost hyperactive editing mm-hmm. uh kind of do are trying to communicate something of us something to us of Poirot's internal state the idea that you know here's a master sleuth he's feeling a little rusty and he's also a little bit out of his element he's dealing with ghosts you know the the supreme man of rationality doesn't believe in ghosts and yet there are things he can't explain. So maybe these um, jarring filmmaking tricks are kind of, they are probably intended by Branagh to sort of bring us into that psychological state with Poirot. I think the problem is that the scenario that he finds himself in and the characters who are sort of the, the instruments that are meant to sort of like uh, usher him into this this state where he is not really sure what exactly he can believe anymore. Mm-hmm. I I think those things are too weak of a foundation to really build a solid bit of either psychological horror or intriguing mystery. I don't think either of those things are sustaining in this movie because the the foundations are just a little too weak. I mean, yeah. if I want to, if I want to get too fancy, it's like Venice, you know, built on an, uh, on unstable foundations sinking into the sea. See, now you're just starting to sweat the same way that Kenneth Branagh was Obvious. when he was making too, this Too movie. tortured. So I don't know, maybe the movie worked on me more than I want to admit. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I, I do find that interesting. Um, let's talk about those characters though, because this is kind of a stacked cast. We have Kenneth Branagh obviously playing Poirot. But we also have Michelle Yeoh, Jamie Jamie Dornan, and Tina Fey helping to round out the cast. And one of the things that I was most disappointed by was there were enough people taking up space on the screen that I don't feel like I got to know any of these other people as characters. I think Christy, when she's done right, you can really get a sense for the uniqueness of each of the characters that are populating her mysteries. And here... I really liked Michelle Yeoh. I don't feel like I got enough of her. Um, And that's really disappointing because she's an interesting player. And I think she's doing interesting things with a particularly slippery character. And 
I didn't get enough of her to fully understand her motivations or why exactly she was the way that she was. But being the character who is conducting this seance in the first place, I would have liked to see her bump up against Poirot a little bit more. Michelle Yeoh and Kenneth Branagh playing against each other, and then also seeing both of those characters in contrast with each other, I think I would have bought Poirot's sense of spiritual despair a little bit more. Um, but we don't really get all of that very much. We get a long speech from Poirot to Michelle Yeoh's character, and then the two don't really get to play off each other all that much anymore afterwards. And I, I do feel that that's kind of a wasted opportunity. I would have liked to see them sparring. I would have liked to see them fencing. Maybe that's not the story that Branagh is trying to tell, and so maybe I'm being a little bit unfair, but... I don't feel that each of these characters got to spend as much time in the spotlight as I would have liked. And maybe that's going back to my gripe about the mood setting, telling me to be afraid, and then not really giving me very good reasons to feel that fear alongside these characters. I, I mean, yeah, I you you mentioned the what the the story that Kenneth Branagh wanted to tell, and I guess I'm maybe the central problem for me with a haunting in Venice is I'm not really sure that the movie knows what story it wants to tell. Mm. You know, the the screenplay is, is by Michael Green, and it does bring in that, like there, like you said, there is a very large cast, and there are some very um, strong players in it. I was pleasantly surprised by Tina Fey as mm. uh, Poirot's writer friend. I've never found Fey to be a particularly good actress i like her i like her kind of when she's playing herself Hmm. um i think that's where she's most comfortable and i think she's very funny when doing that in the movies i've seen her where she kind of likes to try tries to branch out a little bit more i found her to be like successful but i think she's pretty good in this as a kind of hard-nosed writer who's kind of always looking for her next bestseller Hmm. i thought she was reasonably good in, in that role um you know, I, th- I think Yo is effective. I really liked Kelly Riley as uh, the bereaved mother who kind of calls a seance together. Um, but the cast is so large that Branna, I think, is, you know, it, it's large for a reason in terms of the mystery mechanics are, it, it's harder to solve the mystery ahead of the characters if there are a lot of characters. <laughs> so you're constantly trying to even just remember the names of various people on screen and if you're kind of occupied there you don't have a whole lot of time to get ahead of Poirot himself which I can understand that but I think in just giving us such a profusion of characters that does dilute Branagh's ability to really dig deep into as to what Poirot and uh, Mrs. Reynolds Michelle Yeoh's medium Mm -hmm. what kind of they they each represent and the way that their opposing worldviews clash with each other there's not enough space for those that conflict to really be unpacked because we also have to introduce these tertiary players who might also be suspects in the murder and then later murders Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i'm gonna kind of take issue with your appreciation for tina fey a little bit i don't think she's given enough to do here either And I think she's also set up to be a foil for Poirot, who could have been an interesting character for him to bounce off of as well. Like you said, um, her character Ariadne Oliver is is a hard-nosed sort of novel writer who made him famous. And I don't think we've met her up until this point in any of these movies. So you get a little bit of the, as you know, we've been old friends sort of dialogue. (laughs) I'll ding the script for that one and not Tina Fey, but I just don't think that she's given quite enough to do. And her character is one who is driven by a level of curiosity, a level of curiosity about the world that I think is simpatico with Poirot's, but not exactly quite the same. And so she is someone who is also a non-believer who wants desperately to believe, which is why she's dragging him along to this seance in the first place. And then she's just sort of given the role of being an exposition character for Poirot to tell his theories to or to try to bounce theories off of as he's working to deduce who done it. And that turn followed by additional turns as the plot carries on where 
she and Poirot begin to bump up against each other a little bit more. I didn't fully believe because I didn't get enough time to spend with her. Um, I would have liked to see Tina Fey get to do more. I don't think that she got to do enough for me to be able mm. to fully appreciate what she was doing in the first place because it felt like very small flashes to me. I mean, I do think that, you know, any oh, it's a good idea in a sleuth story like this to kind of give the sleuth a sidekick to sort of just as a practical consideration to sort of let the audience in on what our great detective is thinking. And I think that part of it works. You're right, though, that the relationship between Poirot and Ariadne does become a an integral part of a subplot later on in the film um, that would have been nice to see it dig into a little bit more because there are emotional stakes inherent in, in that friendship. And again, be, because there's so much else going on in the film, it can't really spend the time on it that deserves. I, I don't know. I can't help but wonder what would have happened if just a few characters has been, had been weeded out and Branagh had, had really dug, drilled down into the spiritual and relational questions that this story kind of suggests and it doesn't really. Yeah. Which is disappointing. Um, I think Branagh has a lot of plates up in the air. So you have the initial mystery of who done it. You have the, I've lost my faith and I don't know what to do about it question from two different angles between Poirot and Ariadne. Um, you also have the I'm trapped in a potentially haunted house plate that's spinning in the air. And then there's also this additional piece where Poirot begins to question his own sanity. That was the thread that I did seize on the most as being the most interesting. I mentioned a little bit earlier that there was some showy camera work that was done that I actually did find quite effective. And a lot of that has to do with the moments where Poirot doesn't really fully understand what's going on around him. And we get some very intense close-ups directly on his face where everything else is completely blurred out because the focus is so shallow. I like stuff like that when it feels as though it's simpatico with the character's feelings and motivations. And I think at that moment in time, that felt just jarring enough that it put me into the headspace that Poirot was in. Just like all of those additional plates that Branagh has spinning in the air, I don't think any of them managed to fully come floating down all in one piece. They all kind of fall apart at some point. And unfortunately, that includes that thread that I found the most compelling where Poirot starts questioning his own sanity. And I think a lot of that has to do with, I don't really fully know that we are given any insight into his deduction in this other than the speech making that Poirot is prone to do. That's also a character trait of Poirot. So maybe that's also just my personal like ambivalence towards him as a mystery character. Um, but we don't really get to follow him as he makes the connections. He just makes the connections somewhere off screen and then tells us how he did it. And I don't care for that kind of speech making because it feels theatrical in a way that doesn't have very much payoff, if that makes sense. Well, it doesn't give the audience a chance to witness deduction happening, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, you know, I, I'm a little bit grumpy about the BBC Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch because I think it does something similar <laughs> mm -hmm. where we are told of the main character's brilliance and then the character says that he solved a mystery, but because none of the elements that he knows were actually present for the audience to notice, it doesn't feel like an aha mystery being solved. It feels like, well, of course you knew that because you saw things that I couldn't see. Yeah, it's a mystery solving by fun fact, which also, to be fair, the original Sherlock Holmes stories do a lot too. Fair, but I, I, I think the the problem is because Branagh's got so much else going on, not just in the you know the mechanics of the script and the various characters, but also just the filmmaking is so all over the place that. I don't feel like we ever get to settle down and get down to the mystery. There's always uh, another uh, subplot that we're pinging off to or 
a bravura sequence where Brenna really goes whole hog on the Poirot questions his sanity stuff, but is not uh, nourishing to the other parts of the movie where we want to see Poirot also be a detective. Yeah. And, and which feels like a problem because when when the film reaches its close, you know, Poirot, uh, something about the case has brought Poirot kind of back out of his semi-retirement. We see him, you know, back solving mysteries at the end of the film. That's not really a spoiler because we know there's probably going to be another one of these. Mm -hmm. But it's not clear what it was about the mystery that he solved that brought him to that change of heart about coming out of retirement. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also because the mechanics of the actual mystery solving are either opaque or so like approached so slant wise that you can't even really appreciate what solving a mystery means to the detective, let alone to us in the audience. Yeah. I think that gets back at my initial dissatisfaction with the movie, not being willing to take a hard stance on anything. Um, Poirot doesn't tell you exactly why he's energized to solve mysteries again he also doesn't really tell you exactly where he's landed and the question of faith or not faith i think the movie plays coy with a lot of mm -hmm. that and it's that coyness that i find so frustrating because this could be a really compelling story if there were any substance to it but unfortunately there really isn't all that much there there despite the fact that Branagh keeps telling us that there's a lot there and he keeps trying to show us that there's a lot there I'm not really seeing very much evidence to the contrary, unfortunately. Yeah, I feel you know, to, to unfairly make the Del Toro comparison again, I feel like Del Toro, at the end of a movie, you're it's unambiguous what is real. Like mm -hmm. the ghosts are real, the, the monsters are real, the um, goodness inside humanity or the evil inside humanity is real. Mm -hmm. This one... I don't know that I know what's real. Like, there's a lot of, again, uh, because of the filmmaking, it's it's meant to be purposely ambiguous. It's not that this is necessarily a failure on Brown's part as a director, mm -hmm. but it doesn't feel fully satisfying as a bit of thematic work. Like, it's ambiguous, but if the if the ambiguity kind of ends up feeling like a shrug. Maybe that's a problem for a film that does seem like it wants to deal with questions of spirituality and, and belief. I completely agree. Well, listeners, that is our review of A Haunting in Venice. If you have any thoughts on this movie as a mystery fan or somebody who's not a mystery fan, we're, of course, interested in all comers. You can let us know on Letterboxd. You can reach out to us at Pod over on that platform. You can also email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts there. We're going to take a look at another take on the whodunit genre with our discussion of Gosford Park here in a second. Hey listeners, this is the part of the show that we normally devote to the conversation where we share feedback from you in response to anything we've been hearing from all of you out there who are helping us keep the conversation about movies going. But Sarah, we're going to not do that this week because in some ways, next week is going to be one long conversation segment. Yes, exactly. Looking forward to discussing where Seeing and Believing has been, where it's going, and all of that goodness on next week's episode. Yeah, so one of, we're going to be doing a few things on, on next week's episode. We're not going to share all of them here because hopefully it'll be you know something a little special, something of a surprise for you uh, listeners. But one thing that we are going to be making a part of seeing and believing's final bow is sharing you know a couple of our personal favorite moments from the show's 400 episode history and as part of that we thought we would let you listeners get on get in on the fun a little bit yourselves so between now and next week if you want to write in um with any uh episodes that were particular favorites or any individual moments that you know got you laughing or yelling in rage or whatever the reaction might have been we're very curious to hear about that and uh we'd be interested in uh sharing some of those thoughts on the air as well so if that is something that you are interested in get in touch with us let us know some of those uh favorite moments or episodes and we'll share them along with our own because hey 400 episodes is a long time and we were all in this together so 
We really appreciate you listening up to this point, and we're looking forward to hearing what your favorites were and sharing those next week. And now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it, and then we talk about it. And Kevin, this week, you picked a movie that neither of us had seen, and you've called this out as being, you know, a special circumstance. It's true, but there's nowhere in the watch list rules that stipulate that the host who's picking the movie has to have also seen that movie. So I'd say you're well within your rights to have picked Robert Altman's Gosford Park. This movie is set in 1932 and is about a hunting party gathering for a shooting weekend at the titular Gosford Park, the estate of Sir William McCordle, who's played by Michael Gambon. As the massive ensemble of guests descend upon the house, tensions arise, both upstairs between the higher-bred people who are living above everybody else and downstairs amongst the servants, until one evening after dinner, someone in the group turns up murdered. Secrets come to light, and good manners and decorum are broken. And the movie digs into what all of that means, which I found super interesting because I feel like Gosford Park was sort of sold to me almost as another whodunit. I'm sure that's something that you were thinking of, Kevin, when you picked this movie to go along with A Haunting in Venice. But I feel as though the whodunit part of this specific movie is more tangential to the movie as a movie of manners. And so I'm curious to know, on the manners angle, did this movie work for you? Did it have a sharp point or was it a little bit dull? Yeah, so uh, I didn't know very much about Gosford Park going into going into it. I don't typically do a whole lot of, you know, reading up on something beforehand. I kind of, I do like to go into a movie as cold as as I can practically. Mm -hmm. So when I started watching it and the opening credits flashed up Julian Fellows as the screenwriter, I was like, oh, the Downton Abbey guy. I had no idea he had a hand in this. You know, <laughs> I didn't know at the time, I didn't know that Downton Abbey was actually originally planned as like a spinoff of Gosford Park. Mm -hmm. Complete news to me. Um, and so seeing Fellows was in on this, I was maybe primed a little bit for kind of that upstairs, downstairs examination of social mores of, of that era. Um, I am not a Downton Abbey super fan by any means, but I did see the first couple of seasons. So, I, you know, I, I'm kind of keyed into that era that Fellows is apparently very interested in. And I think that Gosford Park, what I really like about it is that it does have that same interest in the particulars of life on a country estate, both for the landed gentry and for the people who keep their lives possible. Mm -hmm. uh, what I appreciated about Altman's film that I don't really find as much in Downton Abbey is he's got a very strong point of view on, uh, on that, not not just kind of the specifics of these characters' lives, but also kind of the whole social system that has been built atop that dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I really loved how Gosford Park was able to depict that setting and all of its specificity and comment on it um, in a pretty subtle and complex way while also making room for a pretty good mystery as well. And I, I, I th it's amazing how Altman's able to do that. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with his trust in the audience to kind of keep up with everything that's going on on screen. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit more, but what are your thoughts on this, Sarah? Because this was new to you too. And so, yeah, I'm curious. This was new to me. I'm also less of a Downton Abbey person, I think, even than you. I'm pretty sure I saw the first couple of episodes and then decided to bail. Oh, okay. And then never came back in. It's not really my cup of tea. Um, this movie, however, was very much my cup of tea. And I think a lot of that has to do with the level of specificity that you mentioned, specifically the way in which everybody else who is coming to visit for this shooting party 
bumps up against the social mores and expectations, both upstairs and downstairs, in ways where they don't really know the full rules of the game, but they're still going to play it because that's the water that they swim in, and that's what they have to do in order to be able to survive. So when each party first arrives at the manor at Gosford Park, the servants are informed that they're going to be referred to by the names of the people whom they work for. And that is such a wonderfully specific detail about the way that these characters' identities are going to be forced to be subsumed under the people that they work for. And it's also, I think, telling that this is something that is also jarring for everybody upstairs who has come to visit as well, too. There's a little bit of chafing at this specific role. I think it tells you a lot about the inhabitants of Gosford Park in particular and the way that they view the world. And then I think it says a lot about everybody else that they're not particularly happy about this rule, but they're going to go along with it in order to try to keep the peace. And so much of what is happening on screen in this movie is everybody going along, but bumping up against those boundaries every so often. And one of the things that I really liked about the dialogue was that everybody is still sniping at each other. They're all still trying to poke at those boundaries, but they'll only go up to a certain point before a line has been crossed. And quite often somebody would say something that I was expecting to be a crossed line. And it turned out that it was perfectly okay for somebody to be incredibly frank about the lives of the people that they worked for in ways that I just, I wasn't fully expecting. It felt very fresh and it felt very alive. Um, and that's not something that I always associate with things that are period dramas. Maybe that's a little bit snobbish of me, but it, it was something that I wasn't expecting. Well, I, I mean, it does. This is also a very funny movie. Yes, and that's what I th what I really like about it is that it's it's got a sense for the absurd. I think that Downton Abbey doesn't really have mm -hmm. the, the like that that moment you mentioned. I'm glad you brought it up where uh, uh, a valet comes down uh, to the you know to the servants' uh, area of the house and is surprised to find himself addressed as Mr. Weissman. Mm -hmm. And they they say, you know, they give him the whole spiel about how, you know, the servants go by the names of the people that they are serving. And then a character says, we think that makes it much less confusing for everyone involved, which is just- Not remotely a, true. Not remotely true. And that, that uh, juxtaposition is just hilarious. Just the- the disconnect there is really funny. And I think that maybe has a lot to do with just Altman's eye for what is absurd about this situation and then finding the different ways to highlight that absurdity through the uh, the behavior of the characters. And he, I think, makes it funnier because he doesn't underline the the jokes with the camera like they're the frames are always full of people uh the dialogue you know altman's signature style is to have all the dialogue overlapping and um half drowning each other out and that gives the viewer so much choice in number one what we want to pay attention to which conversations we want to listen to and also kind kind of gives us the sense of being in the room with these characters and overhearing a snatch of conversation that wait, what did that person just say? And that can lead to some very funny moments. I think it also maybe subtly hints at um, the perspective that this movie has, which is that it's not privileging one person or one social cast above another. It's just they're all thrown together in a room and there's something radically egalitarian about that that hints at the fact that while these characters are divided into upper and lower in Altman's frame, they're all equal. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be a very, uh, I, I just love that that marriage of filmmaker style with uh, the narrative subject. Yeah. And I think a lot of that overlapping happens within the 
editing as well and kind of serves to underline the multiplicity of this story. So you get a lot of cross-cutting between people getting ready for a dinner and then everybody down in the kitchen preparing that dinner back and forth. And it's a testament to the skill of the editing that I never lost track of who was doing what where at any given time. I think Altman does a really good job of giving us just enough about these people and these characters that we're able to follow their trajectories as they move around Gosford Park. And that's no mean feat because this is a very large location with a massive cast of characters. And even though everybody probably gets like fairly minimal screen time other than the people who do end up surfacing as our more primary protagonists, um, I still felt as though everybody within the movie was given something to do, whether that was being um, the poor girl Dorothy who works down in the kitchen and who is constantly being blamed for being the worst at absolutely everything. She gets handed off the worst jobs. It's kind of a, a running joke that gave me enough of a toehold on who she was and where she landed in the pecking order downstairs that I felt like I could get a good picture of what her life was like without having to have her monologue at the camera and say, this is how I feel about living at Gosford Park. And on top of that, each of these characters are given something to do, but then they're also all given smaller conflicts with each other throughout the course of the entire movie. And I think that that kind of rhymes with Altman's sensibility of having that overlapping dialogue. There's also a lot of overlapping character beats and character notes. And up until a certain point in the movie, everybody is at odds with somebody else. And maybe that somebody else is going to shift. Maybe it's the valets who are feuding with the butler, or maybe, um, the different chefs in the kitchen are, are having a difficult time because somebody has informed them that a member of the party is a vegetarian and therefore will not be partaking in the main course. And up until a specific point, we get a lot of those cross conflicts. And sometimes we don't get the resolution for them. We just know that there's something that happened. They serve to build that tension underneath everything at this gathering over this weekend. And then Altman does something I think quite spectacular, which is that he just pauses the movie for a moment so that everybody can stop and listen to a song that's being played on the piano. And in that moment, there are still people roaming Gosford Park with ill intent, but we're also given a moment of transcendence where everybody pauses and everybody has a moment to just enjoy a moment of beauty before everything starts to fall apart again. And that moment and that pause where everybody is just sort of transported and transfixed, I thought was a beautiful moment because it leavens a lot of that tension without puncturing it or taking any of it away as well. Yeah, it's it's strangely kind of a it's a very efficient film. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing about about a lot of Altman pictures is they kind of have a reputation for being a little shaggy. You know, he, he's got so many characters and uh, there's, there are so many different subplots going on in his films that he does have a bit of a reputation for being someone who's not a lean, efficient filmmaker. But what struck me about Gosford Park is the, the way that he is able in that sequence to impart so much information and also do something critical for the mystery, which is to uh, make it clear to the audience that certain people aren't accounted for for the entirety of that song. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a sequence that serves two purposes, which is to move along, you know, set up the pieces for the mystery, but also give us that moment where all of the characters are allowed a. Uh, a bit of transcendence, a little bit of rest while listening to this music, and also to build up the the larger thematic project of, you know, servant or noble noblemen, they're all interested in the music. Mm-hmm. There, there's nobody who isn't touched in some way by the piece that uh, the the actor is playing on the piano. Except for maybe Maggie Smith, who just complains about how she <laughs> she can't concentrate on her bridge game with all this noise going on. But everybody else is 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 in there. And I think that's also something that really highlighted for me one of my problems with A Haunting in Venice, which is, you know, and again, 
it's not necessarily Kenneth Branagh's, it's, it's Kenneth Branagh's bad luck, I guess, that he had to go up against Gosford Park for purposes of this episode. But the thing about A Haunting in Venice is there's so many characters, but there's not enough trust in the audience to kind of let us come to an understanding of who is who and what their relationships are and what agendas they might have. The only way that A Haunting in Venice knows how to impart that information is kind of to have everybody have their own little introduction where they stand and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and and Mm -hmm. this is my relationship to this other person. Whereas in Gosford Park, all that information is coming at us, but it's kind of snatches of half-heard conversation across the room so that if you're an attentive viewer, you are getting that information But also Altman trusts you to be able to follow along even if you didn't necessarily catch it on a first viewing. I think that makes it, you know, again, it's efficient storytelling because he's got a lot of characters to juggle and there are only a limited amount of space in which to do it. And it also really makes this a movie that is presumably rewarding to come back to a second, third, fourth time. I'm looking forward to coming back to it that many times because I know I'm going to notice things that I didn't pick up on the first time around, and that's going to make it all seem all the richer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the things that I didn't notice, and I'm not entirely sure if this detail is there because I didn't go back to watch it again, is I thought I knew precisely who had done it after that song ended. And then another person re-entered the room and I realized that they hadn't been accounted for. Mm -hmm. And then another person re-entered the room and then a fourth person re-entered the room. And every time somebody new joined the party or was finally back within the sights of the camera, I realized this could have gone any multiple ways. I thought I'd solved it at the beginning and the rug kept getting pulled out from under me. And instead of feeling cheated by the movie, I felt so overjoyed that I was going to be able to watch another mountain get scaled and then something toppled off it. And I knew that it was probably going to be very satisfying as well, because up until that point, I was content to just spend time with all of these terrible people. (laughs) And then afterwards, it was just enjoyable to watch all of them start to fall apart after one of their party is murdered. And I think that's part of the thing that made me appreciate this movie so much was it's not so preoccupied with setting up the pieces for you to try to solve a mystery. And it's also not preoccupied with being smarter than the audience. I think it's preoccupied with getting you to appreciate the multiplicity of characters and the situation that they've found themselves in. And in surprising you with the depths of those characters, I had, there were people in the movie that I had written off right up until the very end. And then every single time I thought that I understood a specific character, they would tell me something surprising or the story would say something surprising about them and it would fit. And it would also be something that I hadn't fully considered before, but it didn't feel like a gotcha. It felt like additional depths being excavated as the movie ran on. And that I think is just one of the most pleasurable things about watching a movie is learning more about these characters and spending time with them you you get you know there's the murder mystery of course but i think altman kind of makes his characters mysteries that you want to explore further as well and that's that's tough to do and you know a haunting in venice doesn't really ever succeed at that Mm -mm. like it never succeeds to the point where you you are introduced to a character and you want to know more about them, you're introduced to a character because that character is a cog in the plot. Mm-hmm. And in Gosford Park, that's not true at all. All these characters have their their own lives and their own worries and their own very selfish desires and, and wants. And that is what, number one, makes them interesting. It's also, number one, what makes them a murder suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you can't, because it's all one fabric woven together, you can't really uh, isolate them from each other. And I think that's why Gosford Park feels like it works so well, is it doesn't feel like it's constructed out of moving parts. It feels like it was woven together as a single sheet and you get to enjoy it. Yeah. And I think the one character who could have been treated as a cog in the plot machine 
is Inspector Thompson, who's played by Stephen Fry, who shows up and immediately <laughs> makes a fool of himself yes. and of everybody else who's investigating this murder. And he's also kind of treated as an afterthought. I thought I was going to be frustrated by that the moment that he showed up. And then I realized this is just another part of the farce that is the society that these characters live in. And the fact that everybody is going to continue to abide by this guy's very slipshod investigation um, kind of heightens the ridiculousness of the plight that they all find themselves in. And at the same time, I think it undercuts it a little bit. And it was also just plain fun to watch. Like it was enjoyable to watch Stephen Fry knocking his pipe around, trying to get clues out of everybody and not really managing to do it and not knowing just how incompetent he is at his own job anyway. Yeah, well, it, yeah. And it's telling he doesn't even he doesn't even think it's worthwhile to talk to the help. Mm -hmm. He thinks the, the, the murder, you know, the murder victim is is somebody of high society we've got all these high society people here so i'll I'll just talk to the high society people and that blind spot is what makes him such an incompetent investigator mm -hmm. it's also what makes him really funny it's also what makes the revelation of the actual murder that much more emotionally affecting um because her reasons for committing the murder are uh related to her station and to the station of another person who is also a servant um it's beneath the notice of the inspector to even think of talking to her and it also turns out that the reason she felt compelled to commit the murder in the first place is she was simply beneath the notice of everyone mm -hmm. and uh the way that altman and fellows tie that into her profession as a housekeeper her job is to anticipate what other people want and what people are other people are going to do that's what makes her uh an excellent housekeeper it's also what makes her a very effective murderess mm -hmm. and i think i i don't know quite how that tr magic tricks pulled off but it's amazing just the marriage of theme and plot and character in that entire final act of this film it's really wonderful <laughs> yeah it really is especially because i think i underestimated her up until that point and i think the revelations behind her motivation and then also the revelations behind the motivations of several other people who are also involved in this murder um I think were things that were all surprising, but they had all been alluded to at some point beforehand within the script. So they were a shock, but they weren't a surprise in that they came out of left field and I didn't understand why this point was being brought up at this moment in time. We understand all of the downstairs folks stations in life, and we also understand their personal histories. And this movie pays a lot of attention to that personal history and where someone is coming from. Um, so much so that it's actually a discussion at the dinner table during this fateful evening party where everybody goes around the room and says, like, I was a housekeeper, my mother was a housekeeper, or I was a footman and my father was a footman before me. Um, right up until it comes to Clive Owen's character who says that he was raised in an orphanage. And that kind of puts a damper on the entire party. And I think that's useful armor for his character because he's effectively deflecting and saying, I don't want anybody else to know about my personal history. But that's because his personal history is something that would also compromise him as a potential suspect within this murder in the first place too. And I like the complexity of all of those interrelationships between upstairs and downstairs and everybody being so keenly conscious of their station that they have been assigned in life that whenever they choose to act outside of that station, it is both a surprise and it feels like a completely normal thing because everybody's been placed into a box that they don't fully fit in. So they're going to try to break out at some point. And I just, I love that. I And, you know, I, I also thought it was really funny how the one character who gets to exist in both worlds over the course of this movie finds himself kind of 
in this weird limbo by the end. So Reinfleet plays who we think is a valet at the beginning of the movie, and we later come to find out was just an actor who's doing research mm-hmm. on on that role. Um, and the way that the other characters react to that revelation is when he's uh, a valet, he's not behaving in a proper manner that a servant would behave because he's not a servant. And so all the servants kind of give him the cold shoulder for that reason. But then when he he reveals that he was just doing research and and he's trying to play the part of the upstairs person who must now be waited on, the servants won't let him, won't do that for him either because he's not really worthy of being in that station as well as as one uh, of the maids tells him you can't be on both teams at once mm-hmm. and that i i think is also just a very very perceptive incisive moment uh, of the film as well that you can't really these social boundaries can't just be crossed uh cavalierly these social boundaries aren't necessarily real in the sense of you know the respective worth of these characters but they do have consequences and affect the world in tangible ways and that can't be flagrantly disregarded either yeah because if you do you're going to get coffee dumped in your lap by richard e grant he was so (laughs) good in this movie he's kind of playing a bit part valet who's off to the sides but he plays him with such menace and He's so gleeful about that menace that it was just, it was very enjoyable to watch him swanning around in the background. Um, He's doing a lot physically, I think. There was a moment where he's just leaning against a wall, taking a break. And the moment that some authority figure comes around the corner behind him, he snaps to attention immediately. And we get a lot of that from a lot of everybody else downstairs, too. But the way that Grant plays it, I thought, was enjoyable because he was sort of calling attention to himself and that feels right for that specific character um and i think that there are a lot of really good character beats that happen within this movie that are right for each of those characters and a lot of that comes down to this movie is just wonderfully cast it's huge and it's fantastic and everybody feels pitch perfect for their parts yeah i mean definitely a contender for the crown of most stacked cast ever i mean so many great capital g great actors in this film so like a lot of them doing arguably some of their best work ever Mm. i really really liked um kristen scott thomas as the the mistress of the estate Mm -hmm. um i thought that bob balaban does a great job as this american producer who's completely out of his element and also spends most of his time during the unfolding of a mystery on the phone with somebody in hollywood trying to concoct what a mystery at a country state would actually feel like Mm -hmm. it's just it's wonderful and all the the performances altman's ability to just juggle all these performances so they don't feel unbalanced but yet they feel weighty is just really really something i mean Altman's great with ensembles, I guess, you know, (laughs) newsflash, but it's on full display here. It's an incredible ensemble, too. I mean, you mentioned Maggie Smith as well, and she plays petulant so beautifully, but she really plays petulant really well Mm -hmm. here. Um, Also kind of interesting to think of her character in Downton Abbey, who I've seen in many GIFs and a couple of episodes, versus this character who feels petty in a slightly different way, I think. Um, It's... Nice to see her working in a slightly different register from that in in a way that, again, kept surprising me, even though this movie predates Downton Abbey by a good 10 years or so. That performance is is really perceptive also about the way uh, a certain wealthy person uh, has a very great stake in upholding certain social boundaries and customs because they're so insecure about their own worth that if those artificial boundaries were to fall away they'd be exposed as uh nothing (laughs) Uh, and that that fear i think maggie maggie smith is able to to capture without underlining too heavily like you said it's a very good performance yeah and then on the other side downstairs i suppose um i also really liked emily watson as elsie who turns out to be one of the slightly more central players 
who does cross that line and is punished pretty severely for it. And she's very conscious of what that line is. She always has been. But in a moment of passion, I think we could probably say, she ends up violating a social norm that on its face doesn't feel like it's all that much. And it doesn't feel like it's going that much further than some of the other snark that we've seen in the movie up until this point. But it's an acknowledgement that the line is even there. And it's also an acknowledgement that she has willingly crossed that line in secret before. And that double revelation is too much for everybody else upstairs. And they have to dismiss her because of it. And I really liked Emily Watson's performance around that moment, but also within that moment, because you can see the half second before she says what she's going to say, and she knows she's going to cross that line, and she has to do it anyway. And then you see the fullness of those consequences just come crashing down on her with a simple countenance change. And it's a beautiful performance. Yeah, that moment, I think Altman's great in this movie at capturing kind of the tensions bubbling underneath the surface at all times. And you're never quite sure when those class tensions are going to bubble over. And the moment when it does with Watson's character is kind of a great example of just how her control as an actress makes it not feel like an uh, his, like a histrionic outburst. Mm-hmm. It's a believable outburst, but also you get the sense that the resentments that have been simmering for so long are contained in that outburst. It's... It's, uh, I don't know, it's really something. It's pitch perfect. Yeah. I, I mean, we could keep talking about this movie for a long time, I feel like. There's you know so many characters, so many individual moments, but uh, I guess we're going to have to call it there. <laughs> yeah. uh, listeners, that is our review of Robert Altman's Gosford Park. Uh, if you've had a chance to watch along with us or if you've seen this movie before and have thoughts on it, let us know on Letterboxd or over email. We're always interested to hear about that. Um, but that'll do it. I guess this is the part of the show where I'd normally say, and this is what we're watching for next week's watch list segment, but next week is episode 400. So Mm -hmm. there won't be one. We do have something special in store for you listeners. So we really hope that you'll tune in and we're looking forward to sharing, uh, that with you next week. If you're looking to, uh, join us after the podcast has ended. We're keeping seeing and believing going, so you can always find us on Substack and subscribe over there. If you head over to seeingandbelieving.substack.com, you can read a little welcome message and also subscribe to that newsletter. It's going to be sending out its first missive, I guess, mm-hmm. in the last week of September. So coming up pretty soon, we're looking forward to sharing that with you as well. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, listeners. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.